Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Voices, a podcast by Equanimity Foundation, where we share global perspectives on international development, peace and security, and social innovation. I'm your host, Alex Polk, and today I am joined by Rudra Kapila. Rudra, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely delighted to be here. This is quite an extraordinary opportunity. Thank you for having me. Just to give a little bit of background on you, Rudra, you are the Senior Policy Advisor on Carbon Management with the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. And then you're also the co-chair for the Climate Change Working Group at WCAPS, which is Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. So I'm excited to hear a lot more about your expertise. Um, and could you speak a little bit more about your role at Third Way? So I'm the senior policy advisor at the climate and energy team at this We Think Tank in DC called Third Way. And uh, carbon management, what that entails, is essentially looking at how we can decarbonize the industrial sector. At least that's my focus um, in the team. And what that means is I look at this technology called carbon capture, utilization and storage and how we can apply it. And it's a bit of a mouthful, I know. It's also what my PhD was on. But what it is, it's um, it's a suite of technologies, actually, that can be integrated into very energy-intense industrial processes that still rely on fossil fuels. So I'm talking about sectors who find it very hard to abate their carbon emissions. And this includes steel, cement, production, fertilizer production, um, you know, chemical refineries, and so forth. What carbon capture, utilization, and storage entails, or I'm going to use the acronym now, it's called CCUS. So if you imagine rocks are like a sponge, and if we were to slice it, it would actually maybe look a wee bit like uh, one of those Thomas English muffins, and you've got all those nooks and crannies. And um, oil and gas tend to sit within those pockets, those wee nooks and crannies. We've become really, really good at extracting oil and gas from those pockets in the sponge. Now, the whole purpose of this technology is to inject carbon dioxide quite deep underground. We're talking about three kilometres deep, um, where it can refill those empty nooks and crannies and or pockets within the sponge where the oil and gas has been extracted. So that's one example of CCUS technologies. I just want to say that is the most concise description of something that seems so technical when you first hear it. I loved it. <laughs> like the muffin analogy. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that has just suddenly popped into my head. <laughs> sure how professional that is but it was spot on I was like oh okay I fully understand what she does now that's awesome so I want to just go ahead and dive in um, and speak a bit more about you and your experience and specifically talk about how you got your start in climate change research and policy development what drew you into topics related to environmental justice climate change and policy development Well, 
like all good stories, perhaps, uh, it starts with a Disney cartoon. <laughs> and uh, in my case, it was The Jungle Book. This was a cartoon that my father was very, very fond of. Disney animation and I just remember watching it as a child on video and I absolutely loved it but I always felt sorry for Sher Khan who is the villain in the story I felt that he had a very raw deal he was misunderstood and uh, yeah there was a lot to be said about humans destroying his habitat. I spent my childhood really um, playing outside. Uh, I was banned from video games um, and uh, we lived in the middle of a desert um, in mm. Aldreya, which is one of the kind of ancient capital of Saudi Arabia. Um, and it was a old kind of Bedouin city. So there were just amazing places to explore. My father really enjoyed kind of showing me the stars at night. It was one of the most phenomenal places. I'll never ever forget how the stars looked at night, how during the day I could go hunting for desert diamonds, which is basically quartz. But you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh my God, I found a diamond. Buried treasure. Yeah, it was just so much wonder and beauty. And I think I definitely inherited that from my father. Um, and I should mention that, so I'm a third culture kid. So I was, I'm, I'm British, I was born in Britain, but I grew up in the Middle East and I have Indian parents. So I have these, you know, distinct three cultures that were kind of infused in me as I grew up. And, um, and of course, you know, trips back home to the UK, the wild spaces in Scotland or holidays in India, seeing my aunt, um, you know, in her amazing garden, growing vegetables as well. I was just surrounded uh, with, you know, this ardent love for nature and animals. It sounds like it was this really wonderful combination between having a really worldly and multicultural background combined with being immersed at a really young age in the environment and just sort of experiencing firsthand all the wonderful gifts that we have on earth. And I, I liked you mentioning uh, the Jungle Book. First off, Bare Necessities was my jam when I was two. And also Fern Gully was one of the ways that I first got interested in uh, environmental studies. Uh, and that, that was like our big um, introduction. So it's, uh, it's really remarkable the way childhood shapes our fondness for nature. Cause it's, you know, parents are always telling us go outside, you know, don't watch TV all day, just go be in nature, get some fresh air. And fresh air is critical, especially now uh, and with our topic that we're discussing at the moment. So yes, it's this appreciation of nature and, and wildlife. But I also saw in real time, in a very short span, almost like on an annual basis, I could see deforestation taking place. So my family originally from the northern parts of India. And every year we'd make trips up to the mountains, um, the Himalayan region. And Absol this is absolutely stunning part of the world. Mm -hmm. 
and then to see it every year more and more encroachment by humans into wild spaces and I and it is there's a there's that kind of dynamic there's a growing population right everyone needs space growing industrialization yes but it's also the way humans take up space it's it's unsustainable Mm -hmm. um but it's also very destructive there isn't much thought or planning even put into how we develop and build roads and what have you well this is what i was seeing in india at least like with the rapid speed of development wonderful and actually that is a that's a perfect segue because from you know your own personal history moving on to the present and you know the future as well talking about climate change policy and environmental justice on a global scale could you elaborate on how that's evolved over time how is the discourse about climate change policy making in the united states what you've seen abroad how has it shifted over the years oh how has it shifted <laughs> a loaded question i'm <laughs> uh, probably well normally when i talk about climate change and the whole process of negotiating climate po- policy in an international setting um Mm -hmm. i'm very cynical i often describe it as a train crash in slow motion um (laughs) which is not the best of things but i suppose um and i know there are many scientists that would back me up on this um that as a scientist you see the urgency that we need to act Mm -hmm. And then the challenge is really getting like the policymakers on board, getting a consensus and, and so on and so forth. And it, it's frustrating, I will not lie. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how has it changed? Well, the positive is that it is now on everyone's lips. Mm-hmm. Climate change, climate crisis, climate emergency. It is here. It is happening. It's no... It's no longer some kind of far-fetched scenario, far, you know, way out into the future. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the awareness amongst the younger generation, it's just, it's really thrilling. That's definitely a positive because certainly what was really frustrating for me when I was doing my higher education, you know, doing my undergrad or even like masters the backdrop was the bush years or obama and it just seemed that one step forward then two steps backward um the u.s kind of pulling out of kyoto then you know a very strong segment of lobbying within washington circles of denying climate change so then there's climate gate and how scientists are vilified Mm -hmm. one thing that hasn't changed i would say the plight of women and women of color specifically they are the backbone of global society there are plenty of studies for decades Mm -hmm. that have you know shown how women are essentially the principal caretakers and guardians of the land of of 
of the resources, natural resources, in terms of like their significant contribution to sustainable agriculture, forestry practices, you know, they're the main producers of the world's staple crops. I think there's like a UN figure where like, you know, 60 to 80% of the food in developing countries is, is produced by women. women in developing countries were kind of almost missed out or forgotten in a lot of these climate negotiations Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of like how urgent it is to really tackle this problem Uh, because I mean not to stress even further but they it's not just about how they're the backbone of society they in terms of support but they are also i would say the the resource a very important resource for our climate Mm. solutions and that was also something i felt that often kind of got bypassed in a lot of the negotiations regard between nation states on climate was really I mean already a lot of the issues we have in the environment are dealing with legacies of systemic racism and colonialism right Mm -hmm. and with that comes the erasure of indigenous cultures and more importantly indigenous science so I also you know I'm a very strong advocate of looking at climate solutions through indigenous scientific practices. It's a very exciting time to be alive, given that we are literally in the middle or on the precipice of a major energy transition. I've discussed how women are the backbone of global society and now to put it in a context of what Biden's infrastructure plan you're like what how do women feature in this well what's really interesting is that when this infrastructure plan has this piece which has gotten a fair amount of criticism um, Mm -hmm. and that is regarding the care economy and the human infrastructure But frankly, you know, I have to hand it to Biden and his team that, you know, they are signaling the importance of that human element. You know, often when we think of women, they're not kind of, they're not respected in the same way that men are when they, when men are working. Like women's work is, is, is not really considered um mm-hmm. it's considered like a soft power it's nurturing it's caring but it's not it's really tertiary level of income yes but the fact is if you look at what happened in this pandemic what's kept the nation going is a lot of women who you know and this goes back to what i was talking about my examples of how women have found solutions in the global south it's they show resiliency they show innovation Mm -hmm. and i see this infrastructure plan really 
respecting that that aspect of um women's contributions to not only in supporting the family but the work that they do the care that they provide um they they are the backbone of society and so the reason i'm bringing this up is it's almost asking for it's not almost it is most definitely asking us as a society to change our cultural viewpoint on what is infrastructure and i think Mm -hmm. for an energy transition like broadband is infrastructure there are so many parts of this bill which you wouldn't think traditional infrastructure roads planes trains whatever but Mm -hmm. if you think about what society is in the 21st century what does infrastructure mean how do we use these technologies technology is not developed in a vacuum you know whether it's the research grants whether it's the scientists or engineers working on a technology people are involved there's politics involved and who gets the funding who doesn't get the funding which Mm -hmm. technology should go forward which one is tanked Um, You know, all of these things make a difference at the end of the day on how a technology is embraced and used. And so this infrastructure plan, it's signaling that we need to change that culture. With the idea of more extraction-based energy sources, you know, you have entire communities historically were cropping up around uh, oil fields. And so... Obviously, there's a there's a massive social and economic element to these energy sources, and now there's that shift, um, shift away as you're saying things are starting to be put more back into the ground. And what you're talking about with which technologies are implemented, what they're, uh, which ones are used, how they're used, the infrastructure bill, all touch on how there are many political elements in climate change and clean energy policy. Correct. Yes. Wherever there are people, there's politics. So it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not I'm not denying it's every politics. day. <laughs> yeah. But having said that though, what's interesting and I think what the infrastructure plan is doing that's really unique and it's that you know what we're <laughs> I guess the technical term I'm trying to get at is, you know, it's viewing technology as a socio-technical system. Um, and so there is this social element to it. The, there's this cultural element to it. You know, technology is not just the nuts and bolts of the thing. It's the people who make it. It's the people who use it. It's the people who regulate it. So um, I think what the infrastructure plan is trying to do is really make a start, or I would say make a push towards that transition a socio-technical transition of the entire energy system um in order to combat climate change and Mm -hmm. i'm not saying like this isn't god's gift to the world naturally Mm -hmm. (laughs) there are flaws but um it's i i would still really rate this infrastructure plan quite highly given the complexities it's trying to address in making this transition to a clean energy system. I mean, it's really, really hard. 
<laughs> and that sounds, I mean, not to sound glib, but there is just so much we have to do. Is it really that hard to go green, especially in light of the new infrastructure bill, the fact that we have COP26 coming up, we just returned to the Paris Accord, US just returned to the Paris Accord. So obviously it's a very simplified way of asking, but how hard is it really to go green? It's hard, but that doesn't yeah. mean, <laughs> okay, it's bloody hard. Um, <laughs> that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And again, like I know there's that idiom, that expression, when there's a will, there's a way. So certainly, mm -hmm. you know, I would say that there is a lot to be optimistic about um, in what we could achieve collectively. But just to kind of give you a sense of how complicated this is, you know, the Western world has had their industrial revolution and the developing world, especially emerging economies now, you know, these countries have very large portions of their population who don't have a steady electricity 24 hours. Right. Um, you, have an, you have very large portions of the country who, whether it's parts of Africa or Asia, where people have strategic blackouts and, you know, they build their world, their systems, their daily routines around, okay, well, we're not going to have power from this time to this time every single day, you know, and, and people in, in the West can't even fathom right. what's that like. And so to all of a sudden kind of deny that part of the world or these other nations that actually know you can't, if you have resources, like South Africa has a lot of coal. So if you're going to turn around to South Africa and say, well, actually, you can't burn that anymore. Like South Africa is going to be like, you must be mad. Like you did this. So why shouldn't we be able to? I remember seeing. It wasn't one of the, you know, the larger climate negotiations that we have on the in the international uh, arena, but the Al Gore negotiation with officials in India and it was like the uh, US delegation completely disregarded the economic interest of India as a developing economy and the fact that it was almost a shock to them that uh, that India would want to continue uh, pursuing these fossil fuel sources when they were saying oh well why don't you just become green well it's, it's not that simple as you're saying um, and so how could we finance and ensure that green technology does end up transferring to countries that are going through various stages of development? How can we um, assist countries, especially coming from the West, in making sure that this technology is affordable, easy to uh, implement, um, or at least eased in its implementation? Um, what can we do to facilitate that and, and make sure that you know, we're not trying to make other countries have to deter their, their own economic growth. This assumption that all the brains mm -hmm. are in the West and 
developed countries have figured out the best way of doing innovation. That's just completely Mm -hmm. false. Each country has its own unique innovation system. It's in their culture, how they innovate. India definitely has a very unique innovation style. Uh, Nigeria has a unique innovation style. So these are often kind of, again, in the literature, referred to national systems of innovation. Rather than say, oh, we've, we're, we're doing the innovation, um, we're producing the tech, so we should just give it to developing countries. It doesn't work that way because in the past, what's happened is there's this legacy of what we call black box innovation, where you have technology that's been developed in the, in, in the West. It kind of arrives in the country in a black box, i.e. it's opaque, you can't really see how it's made. And so does it suit the local conditions? Is it designed for the local climate? And if it breaks down, all the spare parts are quite conveniently only made right. in in Germany or in in Nebraska. And that's, I mean, that's fine. I'm not saying that that's an issue, but the thing is, If you are a poor nation and you have a limited budget, then the idea of using this technology, breaking down, like... But isn't practical. What I'm trying to say is, it's like, if we are Mm -hmm. building technologies to combat climate change, why not bring the developing world along with you? Absolutely. I, you know, that actually is such a big thing for, for me individually, but also um, with EQF as a whole, is making sure that at the end of the day, the local stakeholders' needs and interests and sustainability are being met is really, really critical. And whether that means it's within the United States and making sure that these historic inequalities that persist throughout different regions within even within cities um, are being addressed and finally reconciled or when it comes to the international arena and any efforts that the West might have to project its own innovation onto countries that it might not fully understand socially, economically, politically or environmentally. Um, So being able to emphasize the needs of the stakeholders is so much more critical, I think, and I, I hope that moving forward that what you're speaking about with this emphasis on accountability becomes more of our day-to-day with clean energy, climate change, um, and all of that. I think this is a golden opportunity for industries to clean up their act and get creative. Like, why take in the stakeholder opinion or reach out to communities at the very end of any planning um, do it at the beginning. Why not reach out to the communities and maybe they have some ideas of how something should be planned, um, you know, or especially when you're dealing with frontline communities, mm-hmm. you know, they could say, well, actually, um, you know, there are certain parts of the land that are now flooded for longer periods of time. So maybe we just shouldn't build anything at all in this specific Mm -hmm. section. Like I just, I mean, I'm just pulling out, 
you know, examples. But what I'm trying to say is that it's not just about community engagement on the service on the surface. It's about also when you bring them in to talk, mm-hmm. you have to listen to them, but don't listen to them at the last minute. You know, and, and this is what I mean about this culture of accountability is going to be really crucial going forward for building a low carbon infrastructure. Absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. I think that's a super important point and important distinction to make. So my last ending note uh, would be, what is a major takeaway that you would want the audience to have from this conversation? I always come back to this quote um, by Pandit Nehru, who was the first prime minister of independent India. Um, mm-hmm. He said, you can, you can tell the condition of a nation by looking at the status of its women. And I think when it comes to looking for climate solutions, when it's comes to thinking about you know what our future energy systems our infrastructure um our cities our urban you know our urban spaces um that connectivity between rural and urban areas like all of that even when we're thinking about food security agricultural practices um It's about recognizing the importance of women Mm -hmm. um, in what their contributions are to society. And I don't mean this just by looking at it as soft power or something, you know, meaningless. It's really about how they, they are the backbone of society. They built America. America is built like the U.S. is built on the backs of women and especially women of color and Mm -hmm. that can be expanded even further about you know global society food production women are feeding very large portions of the world so my takeaway is that when it comes to climate change let's start thinking about you know how some of the solutions lie with these very communities, these frontline communities, these most vulnerable groups, i.e. women of color, who are going to be the first to be impacted by the adverse impacts of climate change. So let's also think about how to bring them in to the fight because they are already dedicated hard-working they're exhausted by the way we're bloody tired um but they are resilient they are innovative they are intelligent you know really recognizing this important fact and which is why i think that human element in biden's infrastructure plan um and and they're not paying me by the way like I'm not like their spokesperson (laughs) but it was just a a really refreshing change to see that this is in an infrastructure plan like 
our culture and our way of thinking about technology, how we embrace it, needs to change. And that change comes with looking towards women for solutions, recognizing their importance um, and their contribution to this, um, to tackling this problem. And I think, you know, we are beginning to make those steps going forward. I think that's a wonderful note to end on as well. I, I like the the optimism, but also the realistic stance that women are going to be, especially women of color in, in the global South, are going to be the first to feel the impacts, but they're also going to be the most important at the table. And it has to be, like you were saying, more than the symbolic representation. It's not just soft power. It's that they they have solutions and they need to be heard and implemented. Um, but Rudra, thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. This has been a spectacular conversation. I feel like I've learned so much more about climate change myself, as well as green energy and how the political elements have complicated factors, but can be overcome if we have the right endurance. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Global Voices on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and to follow We're Equanimity on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You can also visit us at www.eqfn.org. Thank you all for joining our conversation, and I hope to speak with you soon.